the best in Bitcoin made audible. I'm Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and we've got a great read to start off the week. We are jumping back into the Discovering a Bitcoin series by Giacomo Zucco, hosted at Bitcoin Magazine. So we are part five of seven uh, today, and this is where we actually get back in. Now that we've hit part four, where we took a wrong turn in an effort to get the scaleness of uh of our monetary uh, system we lost or traded the hardness and the darkness the the foundation that led us to actually having a virtual money in the first place so what is part five what's the new plan uh, part five is digital scarcity going back and finding the original hardness of uh of our monetary store of value so that we can start this plan over again and actually sustain it in a new digital world. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Again, this is by Giacomo Zucco, and it is part five of the Discovering Bitcoin series, Digital Scarcity. Next, in the Discovering Bitcoin series, we will build on the previous events of money virtualization establishment of dangerous monopolies and emergent needs for decentralization, to explore concepts of scarcity in the virtual world, energy consumption, and digital hardness. Proving Work – Digital Puzzles Welcome back to this journey through our Plan B for money, which brings us for the second time to focus on the topic of scarcity and the question what? Value needs scarcity, but in the digital world, that's really difficult to get. Information tends to always be infinitely reproducible. In your previous e-gold experiment, digital units represented actual physical gold stored by your centralized company. But how can you create a protocol in which everybody can independently agree on what is being transmitted without any central authority. If such a method required a centralized third party, you would be back where you started, with a central point of failure vulnerable to Mallory. If such a method was, everybody can issue however many units they want, the system wouldn't work. Incentives would push the supply of units toward infinity and their price toward zero. The answer you finally come up with is puzzles. You write an open procedure that everybody can run on their computers in order to try to solve some puzzles with the characteristics of being ad hoc, specifically built around every issuance attempt, otherwise solutions can be reused many times. Asymmetric. Difficult to solve, but easy to verify. Otherwise, the system would be vulnerable to denial of service attacks. And useless. Otherwise, external use cases for the same solution effort could distort incentives within the system. Every solution will grant the, quote, right to issue a certain number of units. 
Non-digital examples of similar puzzles are sudokus, or crosswords, quote, useless games in which finding the solution, which depends on some specific parameters that are different every time, requires a lot of trial and error, while verifying that solution, once it has been found, is trivial and quick. More technically, what you need is called proof of work. It's somewhat similar to a CAPTCHA, but intended for computers and not humans to solve. Hashcash. Your choice falls on a specific kind of proof of work called Hashcash, created by your friend Adam and originally intended for spam prevention in the context of anonymous email exchanges. The way it works is through hash collision, a kind of brute force attack, where a machine automatically tries out several slightly altered versions of the original message over and over with little changes every time until one of the versions, passed through a one-way function called a hash, the mathematical equivalent of fingerprints or footprints, results in a string that respects some kind of constraint. Hash functions while deterministic, they start from the same message and they give the same result every time, are also unpredictable. Slightly different messages will result in completely different hashes in a way impossible to guess or predict before actually calculating them. And irreversible. It's easy for everybody to verify the hash of a known message, but it is not possible to go back to a single message from just a hash. If your users want to, quote, deposit digital assets, they have to create a deposit transaction, add some random number, and apply a hash function, repeating the process over and over again until the result, for some number, is verifiably smaller than a certain threshold, called difficulty. Energy consumption. Your users will have to quote, waste some energy to find solutions. But this is a requirement, not a bug. The only way to make something scarce is to make it costly to produce. There is no other way around it. This waste argument is often used by critics of your system, especially Mallory and his friends, to accuse your pseudonymous alter ego of being environmentally unfriendly. This is not really the case for several reasons. First, Energy spent in proof-of-work is no more wasted than in any other production process for any other physical or intellectual good. Second, the consumption of energy in your system is likely going to remain lower than historical alternatives. We're talking orders of magnitude less than the energy consumption for gold extraction, for example. And third, entrepreneurs generating proof-of-work to get some digital gold aren't incentivized to consume more energy. If anything, they are incentivized to consume less of it. To them, it's a cost, not a revenue. This drive toward using less energy increases optimization and efficiency with new technological breakthroughs or with smart generation choices, which in turn can have a waterfall effect on other energy-consuming industries. There would be no advantage to complicated kinds of proof-of-work that make optimizations difficult. Indeed, the opposite is true. The most efficient proof of work is one that is friendly to optimizations. The ideal being a process close to the thermodynamic limit. Hardness problems. 
Now, anyone in the network can verify that a certain amount of computational work has been uniquely committed to a certain asset deposit, but no one can reproduce that same proof for other types of statements. But this proof of work by itself is not enough to give your digital gold any hardness. It doesn't guarantee that the supply will remain inelastic with respect to the demand. The hash cash model would actually be, in and of itself, very inflationary. The more the demand for your digital gold increases, driving the price up, the more machine power will be deployed to perform proof-of-work, and the more resources will be invested to increase energetic efficiency, thus increasing the supply if the latter is not additionally restricted. The next innovation you need to include in your system is called controlled supply. A new paradigm, controlled supply. Basically, whenever the issuance rate is above or below a certain target, the puzzle difficulty increases or decreases, balancing the rate. You set a target of one issuance on average every 10 minutes as measured every 2016 issuances, which means about every two weeks. This makes for an almost perfectly constant issuance rate. Actually, you just launched the very first asset in history with an almost totally inelastic supply compared to the demand. Whenever the monetary demand for your digital gold increases, the price increases. Incentives to perform proof-of-work increases and the issuance rate starts to increase as well. But then the difficulty increases and the supply goes back to being stable again. And the other way around, of course in the case that the demand goes down. But you decide to go even further. Instead of having just a fixed schedule, you aim for a fixed total supply and introduce the halving mechanism. At the end of every era of about four years, the issuance rate is cut in half, eventually approaching a fixed stock with zero flow. The first era starts with a maximum issuance of 5 billion virtual units, which the users call Satoshis, or SATs, as a tribute to the pseudonymous alias that you came up with in Part 4. In the second era, only 2.5 billion SATs will be deposited every 10 minutes, on average. In the third era, that number will go down to 1.25 billion, and so on. You choose this model to approximate the way a physical gold mine would become exhausted over time, and you call it mining to emphasize the analogy. When you were using a centralized approach, you could simply piggyback the relatively stable price of physical gold. This new digital gold will require instead a long, difficult, and volatile process of price discovery. The disinflationary nature of the issuance schedule could make some phases of this process even more violent. So far you've learned that in order to launch a completely decentralized system, you cannot leverage physical scarcity. That you can reproduce scarcity digitally and decentralize issuance using special digital puzzles. And that in order to grant some hardness to your digital money, you need a strict supply control. But now that you have effectively decentralized issuance, how can you do the same for ownership? 
We will answer that in Discovering Bitcoin Part 6, Digital Contracts. All right, and that closes out Part 5, and I want to talk about this just because I know for anybody who really has not wrapped their head around the mining process, that this part, this element of Bitcoin is particularly confusing. Um, and so I really kind of want to give uh, my take on kind of how to walk through this digital pu puzzle idea and, um, and basically its purpose in Bitcoin. So let's go ahead and hit our sponsor for today's show. And then uh, I'll expand on this part, uh, Discovering Bitcoin Part 5, Digital Scarcity. So as I was mentioning right at the beginning of this episode before we got into the read, was that as we're walking through this multi-thousand year history of uh, basically creating monetary goods, or, or at least discovering monetary goods and their emergent purpose in society, is that we started with hardness. This was the first means of actually creating an investment, of actually creating additional value um, that could be stored over time. Capital, it could be used to better your life. And that started with just the simple idea of being able to catch more fish than you needed today in order to store it for tomorrow so that you can, you don't have to spend all day every day working to just meet the the zero level of life that you can actually um, produce. You know, if you eat two fish a day, you catch uh, four in one day, and then you save. Um, or, of course, you, uh, you, you eat uh, one and a half fish and save those fish in order to have the freedom to invest in a new mechanism to create a new way to catch fish that is more productive, that is more efficient, and can actually increase your standard of living. That, is, that simple idea is the very heart of what economic growth means. It means doing less to get more, to have a higher standard of living by exerting less effort. And one of the, uh, and the critical piece of that is the store of value, the ability to hold that value in something that does not deteriorate, that does not rot, that um, uh, does not become less effective as time passes. Um, and in doing so, after we get to that next step and we start exchanging with other people, we realize that those characteristics, regardless of the actual utility of the, in the, the original good, be it fish that we would actually consume, you realize that in exchange, uh, what becomes emergent in exchange is that you want something that has those characteristics without the other utilities, without being consumable, without being uh, something that you would want to build your house out of, specifically because the exchange, the ability to account for and exchange other goods is its powerful utility, is how we get that uh, unbelievable efficiency. So as we step through parts one through four, we came to the point where money had been developed and had become so integral to society and created such incredible efficiency and uh, trade that we became wholly dependent on each other. Like, like trade is the source of civilization. Without it, there's no way anybody could have 
one one millionth of what they have today if it wasn't for 100% for the ability to trade with uh, millions and billions of people all across the world. That is 100% why we have the standard of living that we have. And money itself is what enables that vast global cooperation. But then we moved into virtualization. We created so much excess productivity and we became so good at exchange that we, we then virtualized the money that a physical good suddenly couldn't keep up with the speed and the efficiency of the economy that it created. And we went to virtual money. We went to gold in banks that became bank notes because those bank notes and coins uh, and the ability to, you know, you know write a check um, and transfer large amounts of supposedly, you know, physical goods, gold um, that was that was backing these notes. The attempt was, how do we secure the physical scarcity and characteristics of gold while getting the benefit and the speed? of a virtual good in exchange because obviously exchanging information is a whole lot easier than exchanging gold bars particularly when we move into the digital age and we're talking about trying to send you know a gold bar from uh new york to japan like that's an incredibly slow incredibly expensive process but to exchange the information that owns that gold like let's say a virtual bill or a you know permission or authentication on a virtual account that owns that gold, well, that's a whole lot easier to do. But of course, Mallory comes along and screws up our plan. What we've done is we've reintroduced the problem of centralization. We've reintroduced control over the money. And in our effort to get scaleness, we lost its hardness. We lost the ability to independently verify and we lost its decentralization. And it went from a tool to create co cooperation and create massive efficiency to one of unbelievable amounts of control and manipulation. Suddenly, money was incredibly easy to corrupt, and it's able to prop up theft and basically invisible confiscation of actual value from the economy at an incredible level. So money is digital. How do we make it hard again? How do we get back that hardness? Now, digital information is inherently super easy to copy, as Giacomo talks about, like, kind of introduces in this thing. Like, if you have a digital picture or something, I can send it to you, I can send it to um, my brother or family members, I can send it to thousands of people at once, I can post it on social media and have a million people download it in a matter of seconds. Like, it is so easy to copy information today that there is inherently no scarcity in the digital world. It was thought of as an impossibility that without some central authority, there is no way to enforce uh, someone creating an infinite number or counterfeiting, counterfeiting an infinite number of any units or editing an account, which because anybody could just look at the information and it's on their computer, they can just delete and type something in. 
and they've got as many of, as they want. They can copy and paste, do it over and over and over again. That's just the nature of digital information. So you have to have an authority that basically says, I either approve or disprove this based on some set of rules. But that inherently means there is control. There is absolute and total control. And humans suck at being fair when they are not forced to. When they are given an absolute power like the control over money, they become absolutely corrupted. And this is where puzzles come in. What if there was a way to create a digital, a literally a digital number that was just incredibly difficult to compute? But after it was computed, it would be really easy to check. You could look at it and be like, oh yeah, that, that is an accurate one. But in order to actually figure it out, uh, took an enormous amount of work. And this is where the hash function comes in. Now, th this is, as soon as you start using terminology and stuff like hash and, you know, all of this stuff, I feel like this is where a lot of people lose some of, it becomes really, really difficult to follow. But just think of a hash function as a math problem. And it's a math problem that can only be done in one direction. Now, what do I mean by that? That means that if you have the answer, you, there's no way to figure out what the, like, let's say you have, you know, A plus B equals C, and you're given C. Uh, you can't figure out what A and B are. The, the nature of this particular math problem is such that with C, you basically still have no clue whatsoever what A and B are. In fact, you, it could basically, it literally has an infinite number of possibilities and therefore it is safe from being reversed. That's called a one-way function. However, if you have the inputs, you have A and B and the, how the math problem works, uh, you can easily calculate C. But if you have C and the math problem, you can't get back A and B. And Giacomo explains in this, uh, in this, uh, in part five here, that this behaves as a fingerprint. This is what the, like, C, the, the answer of the hash function does for the information that is fed into it. Um, the answer, the, the quote unquote, the hash of a thing is literally just a giant string of random characters. There is no discernible pattern. There is, you know, there's not any like words into it. There's, there's nothing to it that says anything about what went into creating it. But whatever information you quote unquote hashed, whatever information you put at the beginning of that math problem, if you don't put the exact same information in it, you will get an answer that looks 100% different. It will have absolutely no correlation with the with the previous answer of the data so an example i like to use is if you like the gutenberg bible is a massive book right and it's got uh, hundreds of thousands of words probably i can't, I can't remember exactly how many but uh, there's just a massive amount of data inside this book well we could take that as our input and we could hash it we could take it as the part one, the input of our math problem, and uh, the answer would 
be another a random string, which is a, a bunch of randomness, you know, like A, B, 6, 5, capital J, like, like it just, it's just a string of what looks like nonsense. However, if you went on somebody else's computer and took the exact same Gutenberg Bible, took the exact same thing word for word, sentence for sentence, punctuation for punctuation, and put it in that same hash function, you would get the exact same string. So it's like a fingerprint. However, if you changed one period out of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of characters, hundreds of millions, who knows, it doesn't matter, any infinite number of characters you could possibly think of, if you changed one period, if you put one extra space at the end of that entire book and hashed it again, the new answer would look absolutely nothing like the other. Even though 99.9999% of the information was exactly the same, the hash is totally different. And now that's a fingerprint for the Gutenberg Bible with the space at the end. And every time you hash that, you get the exact same fingerprint. This is what makes the, uh, the math problem, this is what makes, makes the hash function uh, impossible to counterfeit. Anyone can easily check that whatever data you're talking about, um, uh, whatever piece of information, whether it be the Gutenberg Bible or just your name that's as the input, if you change it at all, and the other person had the original hash, they will know that you changed it. And it doesn't matter what you do, there is no way to make that hash function uh, give you a different answer. Um, and this is essentially what makes it tamper-proof. You can use the hash, the fingerprint of the information, in order to know that the original data that created, the, that created that hash has never been tampered with. It's never been altered because if it was in any way whatsoever, you would, the, the hash wouldn't line up at all. So what does this have to do with puzzles? What does this have to do with proving that someone worked really hard uh, in order to produce this number, produce the hash? Well, what if you just had a requirement? What if you just said, uh, you can hash this transaction or hash this uh, piece of information that says this statement that says, uh, I just created one Bitcoin into existence, but the hash has to have the word cat somewhere in it, C-A-T. Now the hash is random and unpredictable. We can't know what the hash is going to look like from the information. Uh, and... We have no idea until we hash it what that's going to look like. And changing anything about the data completely changes the hash. So that nature means that all we can do if we're looking for a hash that has the word cat, C-A-T, in it, all we can do, our only option is to just keep hashing things until, uh, until we find the word cat, until it just kind of shows up. Well, that means that we have to prove work if we produce a hash of the and we again we can change something arbitrary so like i can have the uh that statement say uh, i produce or i'm issuing one bitcoin whatever it was um and then at the end i can just say just put the number one just arbitrarily um and if the hash doesn't have the word cat in it well, i can be like all right well i'll just change the one to a two and then the hash still doesn't have cat in it 
uh, and I change it to three. I change it to four, and I keep hashing. I do it over and over and over and over and over again. And then, you know, um, cat isn't a very long word, so, you know, randomly I would just stumble upon a hash that happened to have C-A-T in it somewhere. Uh, and, you know, maybe it takes 2,000 hashes. Well, I just proved work. I just pr proved that um, there was no way to cheat this and that I just produced a ton of, or I just used a ton of energy and a ton of computational power and time in order to back up my statement of issuing one Bitcoin. And, you know, we can make this puzzle more difficult. Like I said, that's really easy. And maybe I can do 2000 hashes or whatever in just a couple of seconds. But we could have it so that, you know, I'm requiring that the hash say one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And once you get to that many characters, it you could get to the point where it takes thousands, millions of years to brute force to just try hashes until it just so happens to produce one that says one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That's actually so many characters that it would literally be impossible. Um, uh, that would like take probably to the end of the age of the universe to produce something like that. <laughs> but basically you see how you could change the difficulty by basically requiring that the hash have some sort of characteristic that we can that there's no way whatsoever to know beforehand. Um, and we also know that nobody cheated it because um, like nobody found like a shortcut or anything because they have to use that original message. And it's a uh, fingerprint of the message. So all it takes to verify it, even if it takes them literally a million years of computation in order to produce a address, um, excuse me, a hash that says one flew over the cuckoo's nest, well, if they give me that and the message that they were hashing, uh, I can check it in half a second. You know, I, I can check it as fast as my computer can do one hash. This is the mechanism that the Bitcoin protocol uses to control how many Bitcoin are produced at any given period of time. And what's fascinating that Giacomo talks about in this thing, one of the most uh unique elements of Bitcoin against its prior, like its predecessors, the, the system, the very similar systems that came before Bitcoin, uh, is its difficulty adjustment, is the fact that if too many people are finding, the are solving that puzzle and coming up with, like, let's say the puzzle right now demands that uh, they have the number 10,541 in the hash somewhere if too many people are producing that too quickly in relation to the rest of the people on the network like let's say 400 people in 30 seconds come up with that hash and basically are able to um uh, have a quote-unquote valid message of creating new bitcoins into the system well because they came so close together the network uh automatically says these are way too close together. Now I require you to find the number 2,545,620. Like it, it just, it, requ it requires more specific data within the hash so that it requires uh, a massive amount more brute forcing, a ton more work in order to figure out uh, one that uh, meets the criteria. So... And 
analogy, a, a way to think about this is imagine you're blindfolded and you have a gun and in front of you is this really big giant wall and you have no idea where the target is uh, and uh, it's, it's a big square, it's like five feet by five feet, um, uh, the target or whatever. And if you hit anywhere inside that square, then, you know, you get, uh, you know, you get one Bitcoin or something. But you're blindfolded and you have no idea where it is. So you're literally just going to, you know where the edges of this giant wall are. And you're just going to kind of start shooting randomly on the wall. And then after you take like, you know, 50 shots, one of them just happens to land inside that square. Um, and uh, after that, let's say you start hitting the square too much because you're really fast at shooting. You're getting really good at reloading the gun. And uh, uh, now maybe maybe you've got an AK-47 now and you're just like da, 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 up against this wall. And so it's a whole lot easier to hit this square. Well, they're going to make the square smaller so that it takes you the same amount of time as it originally did to hit that square. But now tons of other people are joining in and uh, they're all blindfolded and they all have their guns and they're shooting at the wall too. And so now suddenly bunches of people are hitting the target. It, you know, somebody randomly is hitting the target. Uh, and because we're, you know, we have a thousand times the number of bullets hitting the wall, well, we got to make that target smaller again. And we got to keep doing it. And uh, every time somebody's like, I can do this and just get paid a Bitcoin, awesome. And you get, keep getting more people joining in. You get people adding, you know, automatic weapons and all sorts of stuff. And because of that, the target keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller so that again it takes the same amount of time no matter how many people play the game uh and this goes uh for also for people who are like this is a god this is taking way too long and they're not paying me enough so if people leave and suddenly people stop hitting the target uh, at the right rate well then the target gets a little bit bigger and this is literally the never-ending game that takes place in bitcoin uh among all of the computers that are fighting to issue new Bitcoin into the system. And uh, in doing so, they have to follow an issuance schedule that is explicit and they can't create any new, um, any Bitcoins outside of that. And that's why there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins uh, at the end of this thing. It just eventually runs out. And there's a whole lot more complexity that like goes into it and some other factors and stuff, but uh, that is the general idea of how to create a digital system, one based on information and mathematics that cannot be counterfeited, that cannot be cheated. And in doing so, you have created a good, a, a, a specific item in the digital world that can't be faked, that because you require... Uh, it be attached to this hash, this valid hash with this incredibly difficult and costly means of producing a valid number with it because we require that in order for the Bitcoin to be real Bitcoin. We've essentially created digital scarcity. We've created a token in the digital world that is as scarce, actually more scarce, more provably scarce than gold. And because it's information, it's incredibly easy and cheap to verify that it has followed exactly those rules. And there's a lot of other elements to it, but that's kind of at the heart of what's referred to as Bitcoin mining. And this is how we get 
digital hardness. So uh, this is, you know, going back to the idea of, you know, the multi-thousand year history of money is that now we have this in the digital realm. We have that unforgeable costliness that uh, he talks about in the, the, I think, part one or two. I can't remember exactly when. But now we have that unforgeable costliness attached to an account, to a balance of something in the digital sphere. And what does that mean? That means we can walk back through this history of money. That means we can start back at hardness and the darkness of uh, currency, of, of money, and then go through scaleness. We can start to create a new system of uh, investing and storing value in an entirely new environment in the digital realm where we start with virtual scarcity and can build a new monetary system on top of it. Uh, and that's what we'll start to get to with part six of this series. Uh, and that one is titled Digital Contracts. So how do we turn this scarcity, how do we turn this uh, provably difficult number into something that can be independently owned and exchanged? And that's what we will get into a little bit later on this, uh, this week. Uh, another huge thank you to Bitcoin Magazine and Giacomo Zucco for making this series. Again, I think this is a really great way to uh, kind of think through uh, the a the history and creation of money and then why why bitcoin was needed why we needed to fix money after all of these thousands of years and what it was that was lost what it was that needed to be fixed it wasn't scaleness we figured out scaleness what we lost was hardness because we had to move into the virtual realm in order to actually uh, make the economy efficient um, and actually to actually get the massive benefit of, uh, of what money enables in society. And now we have the ability to invent, to create a truly hard currency for the digital world, one that Mallory cannot manipulate and that there is no authority to be corrupted and destroy that which money enables. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Again, we will get back into this uh, part six a little bit later in the week. So stay subscribed. Um, I thank you to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network uh, for sharing this piece out with everybody who is trying to get into Bitcoin and trying to learn uh, the all the crazy complexities and nuances of this system um, because there is so much to dive into. And that's what I do here at Bitcoin Audible and uh, uh, with the Crypto Economy Network. Don't forget to check out the YouTube uh, page. I'm going to start publishing a Bitcoin beginners series or a beginning Bitcoin series um, uh, to try to explain these concepts one by one because I know so many people who are new to this space have uh, questions and it is extremely difficult and uh, slow to wrap your head around some of these things. So uh, totally understandable. Go, don't forget to check that out. You can find me at The Crypto Economy on Twitter. And I am Guy Swan on YouTube. And of course, subscribe to Bitcoin Audible for all the best in Bitcoin made audible. Thank you so much for listening. Do not forget to stack your sats with a Swan Bitcoin savings account. Swanbitcoin.com slash guy will get you free digital gold. 
If you use that uh, referral link, you will get $10 free in sats. Uh, and that's hard to beat. Free digital scarce money? Who's going to turn that down? SwanBitcoin.com slash guy is where you do that. And you will auto stack your Bitcoin and have a long-term savings plan for our digital money future. Just a heads up, we are going to be talking about the masters and slaves of money on John Vallis's uh, Bitcoiners Book Club uh, podcast. And that is a great piece, and I've got it available in audio uh, sometime back on this show. I think it's like read 417 or something like that. I will post that in the show notes for this episode. Uh, but you can just search the feed at like uh, castbox.fm or something. Just search Masters and Slaves of Money and you'll find the audio for it. But that is an amazing piece and it really gets into just how powerful and horrible the consequences of a money based on authority are. And when you let a money become corrupt, what, what does that truly look like and what is the true cost of that? That is Robert Breedlove's Masters and Slaves of Money, and it goes into great detail as to what magnitude of problem we are actually trying to solve with Bitcoin, and just how much is on the line for our future and our freedoms. Bitcoin provides us with the greatest opportunity we have ever had to get our sovereignty back in the digital age, to get to a future where we can cut the roots of political corruption. We can take the reins away from the manipulators and we could free ourselves from the subjugation of arrogant politicians who think they can design an organic economy by destroying the very money that it requires to function. And instead, get a future where we have more freedom, where we have more privacy, and where we get some measure of control back over our lives. I am Guy Swan here to shed light on all of it and help you find your way safely into that future. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. This has been a 111 production, and you are listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.